0: It's been very exciting and I realized how much the success of it was very good for us because a lot of us were constantly on the fringes doing these activist things and this one was big time and made us realize we could keep on being effective.
1: Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Art.net News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. If you were out and about in 1984, you might have noticed a striking poster wheat-pasted everywhere. It featured two heroic silhouettes pulling down a statue, clearly avatars of the people, toppling the icon of a hated political dictator. But instead of a statue of a man in uniform, they were bringing down the image of a huge banana. If you were an art fan, you might also recognize the signature of Claes Oldenburg, one of the most famous pop artists in the world. But whereas Oldenburg? was best known for playful, giant-sized sculptures of everyday objects, this giant banana had a clear and outspoken message of political solidarity. The term banana republic, after all, comes from the bad governments of Central America that the U.S. propped up at the behest of its fruit corporations. And the U.S. was once again intervening in Central America. Oldenburg's memorable piece of street art was one image associated with the artist's call against U.S. intervention in Central America and it is one of a huge number of artworks and artifacts relating to this intense early 80s movement of artist organizing that has just gone on view at the Tufts University Art Galleries for a show called Art for the Future, Artists Call, and Central American Solidarities. The 80s are remembered as a time of political conservatism and yuppie excess, but it was also the height of the late Cold War machinations. The Reagan administration's backing of death squads and repression of left-wing movements in places like Nicaragua and El Salvador is one of the darkest chapters of this period. A robust Central American Solidarity movement across the United States in the early 80s organized to defend refugees and decry the U.S.'s backing of the brutality. The artist's call was inspired and in dialogue with this wave of public activity, an attempt to use art's clout to raise money and to reach an influential public, involving figures including the Salvadorian poet and exile Daniel Flores y Asensio, the curator and artist von Brehe, and the famed art critic Lucy Lepard, The Artist's Call was an organizing network that brought together, as Lepard remembers, young and old, Latin, Central, and North American lefties and liberals, artists working in a broad spectrum of styles. Emerging from the discussions around a show by the art collective Group Material, dedicated to Central American activism in 1982, The Artist's Call would ultimately inspire participation from thousands of artists, including Vito Acconci, Louise Bourgeois, Saul LeWitt, Donald Judd and Cecilia Vicuña. Yet, despite the high-profile names it rallied and the recent interest in historical models of artist activism, the Artist Call has been little remembered until now. Ben Davis, ArtNet News's chief art critic, had the chance to talk about the Artist Call with the curators of Art for the Future, Arena Dugan and Abigail Satinsky, as well as with Lucy Lepard herself. Here they are. Okay, well, let's have everybody introduce themselves.
2: Hi, I'm Erin Dugan. I'm one of the co-curators of Art for the Future. Abigail. Hi,
3: I'm Abby Satinsky. I am a co-curator for Art for the Future, and I'm the curator and head of public engagement at Tufts University Art Galleries.
4: And Lucy. Hi,
0: I'm Lucy Laporte, and I don't have a title.
4: Thank you to the three of you for talking about this really important, and interesting show. i was really excited to read the catalog and get a chance to dig into the material. And it has a really interesting backstory. So I guess I wanted to start by asking the curators to talk about that, because it sort of begins with a mystery, the discovery of these uncategorized boxes of material at MoMA. So talk about that.
2: I guess I'll start. I had gotten interested in Artist Call, in part through the work of the photography of Susan Meizelis. I'm a photo historian by training, She brought me to Group Materials Timeline, which is one of the exhibitions that was put on for Artist Call, and I wanted to know more. There wasn't a lot out there, and I noticed that there were some materials in the PAD archive, which is housed at um, MoMA Library, which Lucy pretty much started, right, Lucy? Well, at the very beginning, yeah. At the very beginning, yeah.
4: And I should say that PAD is Political Art Documentation and Distribution which was an important New York artist collective in the early 80s that was all about socially engaged art practice that you worked on with others like the artist and theorist, Gregory Shillette, who's also in this show.
2: The PAD archive resides at MoMA Queens. I ended up going there and requesting they have a few documents, or at least that's what it says in the database. And as I'm looking through the few documents, the archivist is like, oh, you're interested in an artist call. Oh, there's these 12 boxes in the vault." And I couldn't believe it because there was nothing in the database that said anything about boxes related to artist call. And so he said, yeah, come on back there with me. And I did. And there's these 12 boxes that were there. Not really sure how they got there. Maybe with the pad material, maybe Lucy, this remains a mystery. A lot of the materials like belong to Kosha Van Bruygen. I took Doug there, Doug Ashford of Group Material, and he helped me. Like He's like, that's Lucy's handwriting. Oh, that's Kosha's handwriting. So, so really, this is like know, we, a
4: curatorial mystery. You're like looking yes, for clues. And-
2: yes. <laughs> it was forensics. <laughs> it was exciting. I was coming from Texas. I flew up multiple because you could only go once a week. They were only open for researchers once a week. And, you know, when I found them, I tried to figure out how they got there. It's still a mystery. But I knew that I needed some people to help me do something with this material. And so Abby Satinsky is someone that I had worked with for an exhibition called Northern Triangle, which I worked on as part of a collaborative called Borderland Collaborative. And it was an exhibition that responded to the 2014 undocumented miners crisis of the border. And... Abby had brought that exhibition to Chicago, where she was at the time, and I knew she was interested in group material, and she had reached out about doing something around Artist Call. We were talking, and it was like, let's do something bigger. Yeah. So I
3: was based in Chicago for a long time and have a longstanding interest in collective artist practices and artists that work as part of social movements, which has a huge legacy in Chicago. So, I was working at this organization, Three Walls, and we did Northern Triangle Erna's exhibition. So, we've been working on this kind of since I came to Tufts University to be the curator in 2017. We had a program called Artist Response, and Artist Response was essentially about the long legacy of artistic activism. Anyways, I had known about the poster that was designed by Klaus Oldenburg about Artist Call, and I'd always been really interested in it. And I kind of contacted Erna at the exact right time. She had found these boxes. Similar to some of the founding stories of Artist Call, where Daniel Flores says, let's do something bigger. And and had this incredible trove of materials. And we're like, this is a story that has a long history and it deserves to be told. The exhibition kept getting bigger and the book kept getting bigger. And so the exhibition grew to cover both of our sites. We have our two gallery location and, and the book has all these artists responding to the archives with us. So we kind of wanted it to be a really polyvocal experience that like all these artists and histories are talking to each other in the space of the exhibition.
4: Yeah, so maybe let's get into those histories. And that gives me a way to bring in Lucy. So there's this really important but understudied movement, the artists call against US intervention in Central America in the early 80s. And Lucy, you're really famously involved with art activism in New York and beyond. Just set the scene for us for this project. I mean, how active was the activist scene in New York in the early 80s before this initiative came together?
0: Well, it was active. We had pad, we had group material, we had fashion moda, we had a lot of groups that were working on art against apartheid. I spent my 70s on feminism and I was ready to bring that into a much broader place. I feel funny talking, being the spokesperson for all of this, because it was a very equal, I mean, I don't even know half the things that went on. I mean, there were a lot of people working who took over the various committees and so forth. But Anyway, Doug Ashford had started this by doing a show called Luchar at the uh, Taller Latino Americano, and Danielle and I spoke there, and Danielle kind of put the screws on us to do something. I've always liked doing those things, so we started off, and next thing we knew, we had this giant thing on our hands. I mean, it really grew like topsy, as they say.
4: So there's this show, Lucha, that Group Material and Doug Ashford put together in 1982. Was there a lot of awareness about the Central American conflicts, the funding of paramilitaries by the Reagan administration and so on? You mentioned Susan Mazzellis, who was, of course, documenting those atrocities and, and, and the movement in Central America. Well, most of us
0: knew almost nothing about Central America. We knew the headlines. I'll speak for myself, but I had never really paid that much attention to Central America. I'd been to Latin America. I'd spent time in Mexico and so on. But this whole issue was new. And Danielle, of course, fleshed it out for us. And we became aware of all the ghastly stuff that went on. And we had a really wonderful group of people working. And some of us went to D.C. and talked to our congresspeople at that point. And they knew nothing about Central America. We knew more than they did. It was really appalling. But when this thing got started, a model for me, and it wasn't a model for anybody else, but I had organized feminist stuff by just sending the word out like, yo, let's do something. Do you want to be the leader in in Chicago or in any little town, any place? Ask your friends if they can do something. And sooner or later, you have a massive campaign going. And that's sort of what we did with Artist Call.
4: Yeah, that was really fascinating to me, reading what you'd written about it. Just because I'm interested in how these things build on each other and these histories of how these movements interlink that people don't know about. And you you mentioned the web or the West East Bag. West
0: East Bag. (laughs) That was the feminist thing that we did. Yeah, yeah.
4: feminist (laughs) organizing structure that you had been a part of in the early 70s. You sort of brought that idea of how to organize to this issue.
0: That was just my idea. I mean, everybody had their own ideas and we were very loosely organized. People just took responsibility for doing certain things. And a lot of us, of course, had worked together since the 60s. Leon Gala, Rudolf Baranek, May Stevens, Nancy Spiro, and a lot of other people, Artworkers Coalition and things like that. So we knew how to work together on some level. But then we acquired this huge other group of people, of younger artists and so forth. And it was pretty amazing. It really showed the power of grassroots organizing in a wonderful way.
4: You said people didn't have a direct knowledge of what was going on, but you did go to Central America on a couple of solidarity trips at this time.
0: A lot of us did. And a lot of us had already been there and to Cuba before we got on this. So it wasn't like we were totally ignorant, but I didn't go to Nicaragua. I don't I keep forgetting the dates, but it's I don't think. eighty three. Yeah, so that was when <laughs> <laughs> the artist call was already going at that point and it, it became a total focal point for a bunch of us. We ate, drank and thought artist call for a couple of years. And then I went to El Salvador after the campaign. But Daniel was the persuasive instigator of all of this.
4: Yeah, I think we should introduce him, Daniel Flores y
0: He's a filmmaker and a poet, and uh, he's Salvadoran. He's back in Salvador now, married to an indigenous woman with a beautiful little girl named Sochi. He uh, was very well, persuasive, I guess is the best way. Seductive, maybe. But <laughs> He got to know all kinds of people. I know he stayed in my house at one point when I was away. And when I got back, I got a phone call and it said, hello, this is Susan Sarandon. Is Danielle there? <laughs> so he had a, a way of getting around and, and uh, really persuasively getting people involved. And she was involved. But he was the Representative Ivinalse, which was the Institute of El Salvador in exile. And that was sort of a product of the university, which had been closed down by the military. So he was sort of ex officio representing the university.
4: He was a part of the Luchar show. Maybe Arena and Abigail could talk about this important nineteen eighty-two show that kind of kicks things off. It's also where the title of your exhibition comes from.
2: Yeah, Art for the Future is actually Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy is uh, credited for many things. It's uh, what she wrote in her review to Luchar in the Village Voice. You know, she was writing this really important political art column for the Village Voice at that time, um, and she reviews Luchar. That's one of the ways that she describes the exhibition and the artists in the exhibition as art for the future, building off of ideas about revolution and trying to create new futures. And so we take that as a kind of model for our exhibition in the ways that we've brought in contemporary artists into the exhibition.
4: So there's this coming together of energies around 1982, where there's Danielle, who's trying to build solidarity. There are artists who are engaged in New York already. There's some kind of action coming together. It's a very collective endeavor, but you did serve as a national coordinator of Artists Call. Lucy, I do want to give you some credit.
0: I'll take some credit, but I'll share it too. Sure, sure. <laughs> At that time, of course, I knew a lot of people all over the country who were activists and so forth. And it wasn't just me. We'd say, you know, hey, anybody know anybody in Louisville? And we'd get somebody in Louisville or Boulder, Colorado, where I ended up living part time for several years and uh, met the people who had volunteered and were wonderful people and became close friends and so on. So, again, the organizing happened from a lot of different people
3: for our exhibition, we focused on New York, but I just want to like emphasize that there was an incredible plethora of activity that happened across the country in like Chicago and LA and San Francisco and Houston.
0: And Boston and Philly. Were... And
3: Boston, yeah. Laura Blacklow, who's a retired faculty at SMFA, she told me the story of meeting with Lucy and Danielle and having an inspiring conversation. And she was already interested in these issues and they organized things themselves. So I think it's also that you all created this broad call where a lot of people from a lot of different perspectives felt like that they could participate. It had reverberations in all these different ways. There's so many people that wanted to be part of this.
4: Another important figure was Kosha von Bruggen. I gather that her papers were an important part of the MoMA discovery. So just talk about her role in bringing people together as well, because I think that's pretty interesting.
2: So she's the partner of Klaus Oldenburg, She helped make some of those connections to some of the major players within the art world that signed on and contributed work to Artist Call. She had come back from being a curator of Documenta. I mean, she had these kinds of connections. She was also exceedingly organized. You can see from these meticulous lists and the archive is full of Koshev Van Bruygen's lists and they're kind of amazing. And she was the exhibition coordinator with over 31 exhibitions. They put out this big call and they took work that was both made about Central America that was made in support of Central America. And then, of course, seeking artwork from Central America. And she helped to organize, you know, all of those exhibitions. And so there's these lists of institutions, which artists' names are crossed out, names are added. It's kind of amazing. And Lucy, do you have other things to share about?
0: She was lovely and very efficient. I had met her in Holland years before that because she was involved with conceptual art. Then she turned up with Klaus. And of course, their influence was tremendous. I mean, if we just sort of straggled in and say we're doing an activist thing to Leo Castelli, even though I knew Leo too, it would not have gone that way. I
2: mean, Leo Castelli Gallery had a benefit exhibition there in support of Artist Call.
0: And we wouldn't have gotten that high up in the art world without Kosha and Klaus, I don't think.
4: You know, it's an impressive list of artists, both impressively broad and ecumenical, but also some, you know, big names. That's partly out of the networks that people were able to tap into. But let's
0: not forget the really important roles of Latin American artists. There weren't many Salvadoran and Nicaraguan artists, or Cubans for that matter, in the States at that point. And Erin, I can talk to that better. But we did have Josley Carvalho and uh, Gaudencio, Marimelo, well,
2: Alfredo. Alfredo Jar.
0: I mean, we had a really good Latin American contingent, and they knew more about it than we did, obviously. And this was involved. We talked to the organization's. With all of us going, I mean, I didn't necessarily have direct contact with all these things, but between us, we did.
4: CISBES is the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, which is still in operation today.
2: Yeah. People forget, too, that there's a lot of Central American exiles that were in New York. And so they form, you know, these committees. There was also the Network in Solidarity with the People of Guatemala had actually organized events where representatives would speak to the members of PAD about, you know, issues in Guatemala.
4: This is in the course of the organizing. So this is taking place over the year and plus of trying to build solidarity and bring people together. Right? Yeah. Really,
2: 1983
0: was the, the year we were doing most of this.
4: One of the things I did want to get at is, and I think it's already coming up in the conversation, is this kind of tension about how, you know, how to organize. And I think that this is something... I like to emphasize because I think people should know, you know, that these things involve a lot of debates and high wire balancing acts. In the catalog, you're quoted as saying from 1983, Lucy, We began in the mainstream rather than in already committed progressive groups, because the point of artist Call is to mobilize those who have yet to commit themselves and, to be blunt about it, to mobilize artists whose names have some public clout and whose works will sell. I think it's a balancing act. And that's what I think is interesting. But there's like a combination of, you know, pragmatic, you know, what can we do to move the needle of public opinion and raise funds and being as progressive and inclusive and effective and representative and everything as possible. So
0: we didn't use the word progressive in those days. We were lefties.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk about some of the debates that you had in the group?
0: We must have had a lot because we met all the time and so on. But I don't remember any major debates. We were mostly on the same page and, OK, who's going to do this? And if somebody decided they wanted to do something, unless everybody else said, oh, my God, that's a horrible idea, and which nobody ever did that I can remember, uh, then they just went ahead and did it. I mean, Jerry Allen and Bill Gord organized the performance art series, and that was a big one, too. I had almost nothing to do with the poetry, the films. I don't remember even who organized those. I mean, we were all very busy, <laughs> but I really don't remember any fights at all. And we were certainly coming from different political positions, I suspect, different places on the left spectrum. But unlike most of the left organizing, we don't seem to have disagreed that much. Maybe Doug or Danielle remember something different.
4: Well, there was a choice of sort of targets, right? I know, uh, again, from the catalog, there was a some idea of doing a show at the United Nations. And then there was a sort of decision made that we were going to focus on the art world.
0: Yeah, I don't even remember that until I read it again. But... That would have been a silly idea. I mean, you know, we never would have gotten any go ahead from all those endless diplomats and things. I mean, much better that we did a grassroots thing.
3: But also to back up what you're saying, Lucy, when Erina and I talked to Juan Sanchez, a nori campaigner that's in New York City that was very involved with this. He backed up this idea that you all sort of were like, this is what we're going to do. And you had these rather he said they were like kind of orderly, constructive meetings. You would have speakers, you had committees, you got together and said, who knows who? And then you kind of mobilized that way. And it seems like that came out of. The fact that you all had been organizing around other things for a long time and that it kind of came together in this constellation and you, you all were focused. You knew that this was something that needed attention and this was what you were going to do. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And with our exhibition too, we bring in references to Vietnam. I mean, I think, you know, the organizing that was done around Vietnam and there's this core group of people that were involved in that organizing. There's people involved with organizing around Chile as well. I think in the seventies, And you see the same people. I mean, it's great to see these names, you know, reappear. I mean, I think one of the interesting things to me has always been that the decision to, of course, include, I mean, you call it grassroots organizing, but you very much targeted, Lucy, the mainstream institutions as well, trying to have as broad an effect as possible Because you were trying to raise money. I mean, it was set up initially as a benefit, trying to sell works to get money to send then to Central America.
4: In your essay in the catalog, Lucy, you have this really interesting quote. We were not just looking for political artists, but for artists with politics. I think that's a really important point about how you organized. What does that mean?
0: That came out of my experience with Ad Reinhardt, who was a friend, and I ended up by writing a book on him and so forth. Ad was on the streets of Vietnam before anybody else was, practically, and he was out there totally politically, but as far as he was concerned, it had absolutely nothing to do with his art. Art is art, and everything else is everything else, he always said. I've always loved that. I didn't agree, particularly, but <laughs> it was, it's a wonderful statement. We didn't want to leave people out because they didn't have good politics or they didn't have politics in their art. When I look at some of these things, I think, you know, what in the world does that have to do with what we were doing? But we welcomed anything.
4: Yeah, and it seemed like that was a good strategy. I was reading some of the material about the poetry call in there, and that seemed to really open the gateway for people to find their own way into it. Yeah,
0: and especially if they wanted to work. I mean, we could use them, you know, whatever their art was going to do or whatever their art was like, frankly.
3: (laughs) I am always drawn to that sentiment of artist call. And I think that Irina and I produced a large part of the book during the pandemic and at this time where there's all this institutional call for accountability, a lot of conversation about what it means to organize within the art world and how we are all like people experiencing a social crisis and like what we bring to our fields of expression. And so I think that to me is also like the crux of contemporary questions, like what does it mean to organized in the art world? What does it mean? You know, art making as activism, all those things. That's the important question.
0: I have a question for you guys. Do you think this kind of thing could happen today?
3: Yes. There's a couple different examples that come to mind. Like if we think about the Cander's protests at the Whitney Museum, that was as a result of A lot of people organizing from different places to come together around one particular thing. You have the staff at the Whitney. You have artists that are withdrawing. You have these community groups that are mobilized. Very different scenario, but you can see a line from the kinds of things that happen with Artist Call to those kinds of things today. Or there was a big coalition project called In Plain Sight that was around artists doing skywriting and public art projects. Beatrice Cortez was part of organizing it. That also did a bunch of solidarity with different organizations. So I think that Artist Call is definitely a model and a history that's really important to the present. And people are organizing all the time.
0: And it also came out of PAD and so forth, because there was a lot of organizing going on in the early 80s when Reagan was about to come in and all hell broke loose. We did a lot of great Washington demonstrations with art and not using words, but with using images. And I mean, there's a whole history of this, obviously. And then, of course, going back to like 1948, artists were protesting at MoMA. Did a lot of protests since then in MoMA. So, both feminist and general and blackmailing artists to be in their collection so they could be in a show and so forth. So,
4: yeah, it obviously feels very relevant to today. On the other hand, I am struck by how many layers of activism it stood on top of. It's coming out of, you know, a lot of like decades of experience of people in sort of ongoing association with each other. And I agree that there is some of that going on, but. You know, it feels much more fragmentary.
0: Decolonize this place and strike MoMA and uh, and some of the Palestinian stuff. My partner is very involved in justice for Palestine, so I'm sort of vaguely up on that. But it's his project. But there's just so much to protest now that I can't even choose where you go.
2: No, no, there's a lot of activism that's targeted more towards institutions today, and. It does seem that Artist Call was more interested in working with institutions. And I think that's an important difference to acknowledge.
0: I don't remember much support from the institutions about Artist Call. The reason the PAD archive and Artist Call ended up at MoMA was Clive Philpott was a wonderful British artist book expert, was a founding member of PAD. Trusted him to do the right thing with this, but then he had to leave, and the right thing was not done with the Pan Archive.
2: I mean, definitely MoMA wasn't someone, but I mean, other galleries, like you said, Leo Castelli, Paula Cooper, they basically opened their doors and said either we can have stuff here, or they organize something. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I th- I think some people say that that could happen today, but I wonder for certain. New York galleries, would they really want to take a political stance on something? I mean, related to Central America today? I don't know.
0: Paula, of course, was an obvious one because Ron Will and Bob Hewitt and I got this 1968 thing going at Paula's about the Vietnam War in support of student mobilization against the war. And Paula recapitulated that show, which was a big minimal show. I mean, no politics in the art at all. So there was a history with Paula backing us up on this stuff. Some of the galleries were the ones we could go to. There were others that we went to, we wouldn't have gotten in without closing Kosher.
4: This is a good way back into the history, I guess, because for the show at Tufts, you recreated some of the important works associated with The Artist's Call, and that includes the Hans Haka U.S. Isolation Box, Granada, 1983. So can you just talk about that work and the discourse generated in the press?
3: Yeah, the U.S. isolation box directly references the size of the holding cell that the U.S. military used after their short intervention in October of 1983. And the U.S. said that they were there to rescue these medical students that were part of the fractured New Jewel movement. But really, looking back on that time, it's apparent that they were also stopping Cuba from giving money to form an airport. And so Hansaka makes this piece at the time it's exhibited at CUNY in New York. And there is some media uproar of it. And they sort of turn the inscription that points to exactly what it is to the corner. It's such an important piece. I think also because when we think about how Hansaka is working within these kinds of art world institutional histories and inserting the conversation about what U.S. intervention truly looks like into art magazines as this kind of like. In order to talk about this piece, you must talk about this intervention and how we say that this intervention is a success but actually is just part of the subterfuge that the Reagan administration is pushing forward to sort of stop communism and enact terrible structural violence. So it's really amazing that through Doug Ashford talking to Hansaka and like, you know, we were able to remake this piece. So again, it's also like, you know, these relationships that we're like really benefiting from that were so strong that, you know, people want to see this work again.
0: Mm -hmm. And let's not forget Peter Gorfain's button, which I just I've always love that button, and, and Peter's an old friend. That was a really
4: wonderful little
0: propaganda piece. It was a beautiful thing.
4: Describe that for the listeners. What is the button?
3: Peter Gorfan worked in woodcut, he also made some other logos for artists meeting for cultural change. And it's essentially these sort of people marching kind of across a horizon, and it has the artist call logo insignia as part of it.
2: He did sculpture too, and there's a big, big work by him. That was on view at Judson. So, Judson was the main kind of exhibition space for the benefit. And they had the press release there and so forth.
0: And we yeah. had this, this huge banner, huge banner, floor to ceiling, the church. It was signed by everybody who came through.
2: I tried to find it, and you all brought it to DC. I read somewhere that it was to be sent to Reagan, but I couldn't find. It. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened to it. But Lucy showed this beautiful photograph of Alice Neal signing the canvas, and I thought that was so touching. And with John
0: Hendricks helping her do it. Yeah, with John Hendricks. John was a modern major organizer. I mean. There were so many people who did just as much work as Danielle and I and Doug and so on that I'm sorry
4: I'm remembering them all. Everything converges on the focus week of Artist Call Action in January 1984. And so you have 31 exhibitions and more than a thousand artists participating. And there are nonprofit spaces like ABC No Rio and Fashion Moda and for-profit galleries like Leo Castelli and Paula Cooper. So just... Give a sense of the breadth of the week and, you know, what it felt like.
0: Well, I I don't remember the exact dates. First, there was a procession for peace, which was led by Bread and Puppet, went from the Intrepid down to Washington Square, and then we all read names of the desaparecidos. Then there was the Avenida de las Americas, which is the real avenue of the Americas, not Sixth Avenue, but uh, West Broadway. And that was a huge thing. And there were performances. I remember Susan McCarn did a sort of guerrilla performance.
4: So people took over like a block of the street.
0: The first block between House and then Prince. And then there was the Judson Church stuff, which was the original, the sort of biggest deal because it was a really big space and so forth. And we asked the, all the art magazines to put Klaus's poster on the front. And then only Arts did, but High Performance did a really nice cover about ours. Called And we were covered fairly well by the mass media, I think it really made an impression. But the sad thing is, is that we do all these things and they make an impression and then life goes on. So I must say I'm fairly pessimistic about all of this at the moment.
4: An interesting aspect was the Solidarity Art by Mail show at Judson Church, which did respond to this idea of the need for Latin American participation. It really realizes some of the original ideas of conceptual art, the political dimension of conceptual art, which people sometimes forget about as this way to tap into alternative networks and build an international community of art this really is a very concrete example of that
0: yeah and that was what josley and who else was head of that no,
2: fatima fatima bracht
0: yeah and then saber moore worked with the whole codex thing which was a beautiful homage to the mayan codices, yeah, and aztec codices
4: but abigail and arena tell me about this show the solidarity art by mail show
2: You know, as I mentioned, they wanted to get art from Central America, but it was difficult. In fact, there was supposed to be a whole creative works coming from Nicaragua. Lucy even sent a list to Rosario Murillo, you know, saying we'd like these works, and she promised that they were being sent, and then they never came. And then they got some Central American works, but I don't think as many as, you know, they would have liked. And so, Joselli and Fatima being part of the organizers wanted to figure out a, a good way to get Latin American art here. And mail art turned out to be a good alternative because it's meant to be sent. <laughs> it's not like it's not going to get held up right well, at the border for or you know, other. No. <laughs> who knows? I mean, I, the, mean. <laughs> I think the
0: Salvadorans didn't have much of a chance of getting stuff up here. Yeah. Know.
2: So Fatima had just worked on um, this Latin American multiple show at Franklin Furnace. So she had this whole kind of contact list going and they just added to it. Again, the archive is really great in terms of seeing all the people that they wrote to. They wrote a letter and they just asked for contributions and people sent. And some of, you know, people that we talk about in terms of Latin American male art, you know, as a genre, like the big players are among those contributions Again, this was one of these kind of finds. Abby and I were at Franklin Furnace trying to figure out, well, maybe, you know, Franklin Furnace has these. It was always like, so-and-so, no, so-and-so, no, so-and-so. And they helped us reach out to Joselli And she kept it all, like, pristine.
0: Joseli's another very efficient one we had. I mean, luckily, a lot of us were efficient.
2: <laughs> yes. And there it was. And we got to pick what Great. we wanted from it. But we showed most of it in the spirit yeah. of male
3: art. We did show most <laughs> of it because it's all about the democratic action. Yeah, it's incredible. Just the entire collection of male art from that time period. So works by like Edgardo Antonio Vigo and Clemente Padin and Lottie Rosenfeld and
2: Leon Ferrari. Yeah, yeah Leon um, Ferrari. Mm-hmm.
3: I think also is really great in the context of doing this contemporary exhibition where we're mixing time periods. So we're like having work from artist call and having work that directly preceded it and having contemporary artists respond. It was like we were able to recreate one of the exhibitions from the time period to have this whole collection of these male art pieces. So I think that was like a really special addition to the show.
2: What's also great about it is that it's not... Just typical mail art. People also kind of sent like objects. You know, some of them are quite elaborate, like books. So it's not just uniform, small little postcards. It really varies in terms of the response. And I really like that it aspect. This reminded of it as me
0: well. of, I don't think this was artist Cole, but I remember Leon and me standing in a long line at the post office down on Canal Street, and we were mailing a papier mache bomb. <laughs> to some official or whatever. I mean, in these days, you know, we would have been dragged off and thrown in jail. But they—they, <laughs> they, I mean, it was all. We had a label on it, and we paid the postage, and off it went. I mean, I don't know where it went or <laughs> how it survived. But, but uh, the, those were the days. That's amazing.
4: <laughs> Talk about a, a time capsule of another moment. Um, so there's this giant wave of activity that breaks in January 1984. What happens after that?
0: Well, sadly, it went on until spring, through the spring, I think there were odds and ends that were still going and we were exhausted. <laughs> like, I don't think too much went on after that, but I did go to El Salvador. I mean, it wasn't that the issue went away for us and we were still you know, doing all the usual things, but in terms of the actual organizing and bringing together events and things, as far as I can recall, there wasn't too much after June or so.
3: Part of the story that was told to us is that I believe it was at John Hendricks's studio. Is that right, Erina? I think it's at Leon and Leon's oh, studio. So it's, yeah. it's, it's always at Leon's, oh, <laughs> Nancy's, yeah. you know, that you had this meeting and you had this debate over whether this was going to turn into an organization and to keep working on it or whether it was time to move on. And I, it doesn't seem to us when Erin and I have talked about it that in that decision that it was, again, like you're not moving on from the issue, but that to make an organization would mean a totally different thing than the campaign that it was, that it was this confluence. You came together and then decided that you would continue to work on this in other ways. One of the things that I wrote about in my essay is I spent a lot of time in Chicago. One story there is that Artist Call is part of the campaign. There's a group of artists that came together that formed the space X Street Arena. X Street Arena then goes on for a number of years afterwards as an incredibly important, legendary alternative space in Chicago, brings together all kinds of different solidarity movements, especially the Puerto Rican independence movement, and Mike Piazza, who is one of the artists that started that, then inspires a lot of artists like social engaged artists that are working in Chicago today, like Temporary Services and on and on. Greg Chalette was there. I'm not trying to like buffer that you all decided to not do it anymore. But I do think it's interesting because it just starts many things. It just doesn't continue as one thing. That is what the call did. Like all these people could be part of it. And it starts so many things.
0: And we went on to other ghastly issues. I mean, there were other things that were calling us as
4: well. So finally, you write in the catalog, Lucy, artist call swallowed a year of our lives, and it was exhilarating. I wonder what it's like to look back on the documents now and what you think its kind of legacy is now.
0: Well, I think they've done a wonderful job at showing what the legacy is. I mean, it's been, you know, blast from the past, and it's been a lot of fun. And I just wish I could say that then we went on and did more and more and more about Central America instead of just not quite dropping it, but moving on to other god-awful things that were going on and so on. But it's been very exciting. And I realized how much the success of it was very good for us, because a lot of us, were constantly on the fringes doing these activist things. And this one was big time and made us realize we could keep on being effective.
4: It really is such a vital piece of history with so much complexity and so many important lessons that I take away from it. So thank you so much for talking to me today to all three of you. It truly has been a big honor for me.
2: Oh, we've much enjoyed it.
3: Thank you for having us.
2: Thank you so much Ben and Lucy and Abby. So nice to be here.
3: Yes, and Lucy, thank you. <laughs>
1: That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manolili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.